Take your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 7 this morning. Joshua chapter 7. As we continue our study through the book of Joshua, we come this morning to Joshua chapter 7. We'll be looking at it in its entirety today. At some point in college, I picked up a magazine that was highlighting 10 leaders and influencers of the day. And it interviewed every single one of them and simply asked them this question. What is some quote or some phrase that had an influence on your life? I love those kind of things. And I remember taking that magazine and reading through all of it. And 20 years later, I still remember one of them. One of them was from the Secretary of Defense at the time, Donald Rumsfeld. And he said this. He said, if you drop a pebble in a pond, it makes ripples. The test is, how big of a stone will you throw into the pond? Now, I love the word picture of that. That word picture has never left me. The idea that one little something you throw in has consequences beyond itself, that there are rippling effects to everything that we do in life. And I believe the intention of that quote and what it meant for him, as you continue to read the article, is it stirred him up and gave him a desire to be great to do something with life that, that really mattered, to do something that made an impact on the lives of others, to throw in a massive rock of influence. But it did something different to me. To me, that mental picture of throwing a rock or a pebble into a pond and seeing the ripples go out reminded me that our decisions have consequences. And as a pastor, there is one area in which I've seen this play out over and over and over again. It is the area of sin. No one sins in isolation. Sin always affects others. It always has consequences. And here's the deeper reality. Even if that sin is never seen, the consequences are always and that really is the point of Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7 is about the rippling effects of sin. Let's look at it together. The story begins in verse 1 with a bit of an overview of everything that has happened and then is given in great detail in verses 2 and following. Now let me say this, if you were to be reading through Joshua or have been with us through our journey in Joshua and you came to chapter 7, you would find yourself very surprised if you did not know that it was coming. Because chapter 7 records for us a very abrupt and dramatic change. And as a matter of fact, after chapter 7, it goes back to the way that it was before. Chapter 7 is this isolated chapter in which everything is different from the rest of the book. Up until this point, everything in Joshua has been about supernatural victories. God on the move, seeing what we talked about a minute ago from Ephesians 3.20. God doing greater things than we ever imagined were possible. God promising the people that if you just trust me and if you just follow me, I will lead you into the promised land, which represents life as it was meant to be. The whole thing is a picture of us trusting and following Jesus and him leading us to experience the best of all possible lives in this broken world, the life in relationship with God. And all of these dramatic things are happening. He leads them over the Jordan River. He leads them to a moment in which they create a monument to the Lord and give him glory for all that he has done. 
he leads them to Jericho and allows them to march around the walls in a moment that seems absolutely crazy, yet God shows up and they watch without doing anything except following the instruction of the Lord. All of the walls crumble. They go in and they take the city exactly like God had told them to do. And it's just victory after victory after victory. And all of a sudden you come to chapter 7 and out of nowhere there's a devastating defeat. Look at verse 2. It says, Joshua sent some men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to these men, go and spy out the land. So the men went and they, they spied out Ai and they returned to Joshua and said, hey, don't have all of the people go up, but just let two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there for they are few. So he says, go and survey. What, what is this next battle? They've already fought the first one in Jericho. What is the next one? They go up, they look at it and they say, listen, there's no need for all of us to go. Just send two or 3,000 people. Joshua responds and it says in verse four, so about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people. Now listen, this is not false confidence. They should be confident. God has told them every place where their souls touch, they will receive as long as they continue to trust and follow the Lord. There is no arrogance here on Joshua's part. Joshua's trusting and following as he's been doing from the beginning. This was a reasonable thing to do in his mind. And it says the most surprising thing in verse 4. It says, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them at the descent. And this little phrase is quite significant at the end of verse 5. It says this, And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. You see, the reason that's significant is because if you've been with us through our study of Joshua, you will notice these words have been used twice before. In chapter 2, the spies go in and they meet Rahab. Rahab says, listen, everyone has heard about the people of God. Everyone we know is what, knows what God has done, how God delivered them out of Egypt and destroyed the Egyptian army. And all of our hearts have melted because God's people are on the move. Then in chapter 5, it tells us that all the kings of Jericho and all of the kings of the surrounding nations, including Ai, they heard that God's people are on the move and they know that God is with them. All of them are terrified and all of their hearts are melted. So, You've got God's people with strong and courageous hearts, Joshua 1, but all of the surrounding nations with hearts that are crumbling and melting. Why? Because they know they're going to lose. But all of a sudden, you see the exact opposite happen, where the surrounding nations have hearts that are rising in courage, while at the same time, the people of God's hearts are melting. It says, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The tables have turned. The entire nation has felt crushed. And Joshua is absolutely devastated. There's no words that can be given us more clearly than the words that are given to us in verse 6. It says, Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. All day he was there, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. They're mourning, they're devastated, they're discouraged, they feel defeated, they're broken and they're confused. And then Joshua begins to pray. Now you'll notice this prayer is in the form really of an accusation. He's accusing God. And the reason he's accusing God is because chapter 1 was clear. Joshua, trust and follow me. Do everything I've commanded. And if you do, you will get success. Meaning, you will accomplish what God intended for you to accomplish. In Joshua's mind, they've done this. And this defeat makes no sense at all. Look at what he says. 
Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Notice the the question and the exclamation point. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of this and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth And what will you do for your great name? Joshua sees a bunch of problems. The first problem is, is that this is not the way God promised it was gonna go. Trust me, follow me, you'll get success. Second of all, where all the hearts of the people were melting, especially if they heard what happened in Jericho, now all of the people are rising in courage, meaning they're gonna now be on the offensive instead of the defensive. The thing that bothers Joshua the most is what this does to the reputation of God because this is not just about people feeling that they can take God's people. It's about them feeling that they can take the Lord because his people represent his name. So now it's a loss for God himself is what Joshua is saying. And so the Lord decides to respond. And if you've read the Bible in these circumstances, when God responds, it never goes well for the one who asks the questions. These are great responses. The Lord says to Joshua, Joshua, I'm so sorry this has happened to you, buddy. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Joshua, get up. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. And here it is in a progression. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Now listen, in the last chapter... When the people of God were marching into Jericho, the Lord gave one instruction. You're gonna see all kinds of beautiful things. You collect them, you put them in the treasury of the Lord and you don't take any of those things for yourselves. Very clearly instructed. And the Lord says, someone did this. Therefore, because of that, verse 12, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And here's his instructions on how to do that. And I love how he starts again, get up, get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel, and you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Here's the process of how they're going to discover who has them. Now imagine how terrifying this would have been if you were the one that had them. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. The tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan the Lord takes shall come near by household. And the household the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. In the following verses, it says Joshua rose in the morning and he did exactly what the Lord had said. They brought all the congregation of Israel together. So imagine this scene with me. Remember, this is narrative. It's a picture. We're to remember, think about this moment. So he calls everyone together and by lot, it goes to the tribe of Judah. And then by lot from the tribe of Judah, it comes to the clan of the Zarahites. It's getting smaller. Then from the clan of the Zarahites, it goes to the household of Zabdi. So now all of it is down to one household. It is that one household standing in front of the people of God 
as one more lot is cast. And the last lot shows that out of the household of Zabdi, it is one man and his name is Achan. Then Joshua said to Achan, verse 19, look at this. My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan answers Joshua, verse 20, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. And notice his progression of sin. We're gonna spend all next week on how to fight sin in this circumstance. You do not wanna miss very practical message next week. But here's what he says. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Look at what he did next. Then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth beside my tent with the silver underneath. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. That is how sin works. We'll talk about it next week. And this is what happened. I saw it, and then all of a sudden it got into my heart, and I, I wanted it. And then after I wanted it, I decided to take it. And then when I took it, I, I then hid it. And look at what it says in verse 22. I love this response by Joshua. Again, we'll talk about this practically next week. Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in the tent, was the silver underneath. They took them out of the tent, they brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid it down before the Lord. Joshua and all of Israel with Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, and his tent, all that he had, listen to this, all of his family, his tent, his animals, everything that he had, including the things that he had taken, all of those things were brought out. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor, which means the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord now brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned him with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. And therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the valley of Achor. You see, what we discover in this little chapter, in this little section here, particularly in verses 16 through 21, is the untold story of chapter 6. You see, at the end of chapter 6, the walls had come down, the men had gone on, they devoted everything to destruction, which we talked about in detail last week. And if this troubles you, what they did to Achan, listen to last week, because this is a picture of the wrath of God on sin. But there's a picture of the grace of God here in every chapter as well. But it tells us that what we didn't realize is that when all of the soldiers were going in and fighting, there was one man that was stealing. That after the battle, as all of the warriors took their swords down to the Jordan River and washed the blood off of their swords, there was Achan Achan washing the dirt off of his shovel. And while everyone else was celebrating the victory, he was concealing his sin. It's the other side of the story. While everyone else was celebrating, there was Achan hiding something, assuming that no one would ever know. Now let me tell you the saddest irony of the whole thing. Is that Achan, with the rest of the people, was headed into the promised land with a picture of life as it was meant to be. God had told the people, if you'll trust me, if you'll follow me, I'll give you everything. I'll give you the promised land. Life as it was intended to be, the greatest life you could ever imagine is yours once you go into the promised land. And while he was headed into the promised land, unable 
to just wait and trust that the promises of God were better, he broke faith, as it says in chapter 1, and instead of looking forward to the treasure, he traded it for a bunch of trinkets. He traded all of the treasure that God had promised for trinkets. And can I just tell you, that is always how it works with sin. Sin is trading the greater treasure that God has promised you for trinkets that ultimately do not matter a bit and never fulfill you. See, Achan hid his sin and assumed that no one would ever know it but him. But the problem is this. Achan failed to realize what I believe is the primary principle of this story. I want to encourage you to write this down. The primary principle above everything else in Joshua 7 is this. There are always rippling effects to unseen sin. There are always rippling effects to unseen sin. There are a thousand lessons in Joshua 7. This is the primary one because what it reminds us of is this. Our hidden sin, even if never uncovered, listen to this. Your hidden sin, even if it's never uncovered, still has consequences. And the consequences are always felt before and way beyond the sin is ever exposed. I think our feeling is this, is once this is known, it's going to be bad. What I want to say to you is this, it's bad before it's known. There are rippling effects of sin even if the sin is never seen. Quickly, let me show you the three consequences of hidden sin that will be seen even if the sin is never seen. The first one is this. Our hidden sin always grieves God's presence. Write that down. Our hidden sin always grieves God's presence. theme of the book of Joshua from beginning to end is that God himself is the hero of the story. And God works every circumstance and every situation in such a way that no one can think that they were the hero of the story. They can't cross the Jordan until the ark goes in first, symbolizing the presence of God. They never wield a sword when they're trying to take down the walls of Jericho. They just walk around it with the ark, symbolizing the presence of God, and the walls come down. Why? Because it's God who's bringing the victory. One of the primary principles from the whole book of Joshua is that the presence of God is the key to everything in life. Everything flows out of the presence of the Lord. His manifest, felt presence. And it was God's presence which was the key to the Jordan and to the Jericho. The centrality of the Ark of the Covenant and everything in chapters 1 through 6 is marked by his favor. And all of a sudden, in a surprising manner, Chapter 7 is no longer marked by the favor and the blessing of God. It is marked by the anger of God. That's why it says in verse 1, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And it says in verse 26, the last verse, that God turned away his burning anger. This entire story is bracketed by the anger of the Lord. And verse 12 is the most devastating statement of all in which the Lord says this. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. God says about his people, the reason they ran away is because they've been devoted for destruction. Why? Because I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted thing. Listen to this. 
Your unseen sin always removes God's empowering presence. Always. Your unseen sin removes God's presence. And here's the reason why. You can't walk in your sin and walk in the spirit at the same time. All of us have sin we don't know about. There are some sins that you know you have that you're failing and refusing to confess and to get right before God with. It is pride that is keeping you with those hidden sins. And let me just be very clear, you cannot continue to walk in the spirit while you're hiding those sins. This is the whole point of 1 Thessalonians 5 when it says, do not quench the spirit of God. It means that our sin puts out the fire of God. It extinguishes the fire of God's presence. You cannot be white hot on fire for the Lord while at the same time you're hiding sin. Which means this, even if no one knows about your sin and you're the only one that knows about your sin, it is still hindering the presence of God from among you. And everything in your life flows out of the presence of God. There is no peace and no joy and no life. There is nothing without God's presence. You have to see this or this isn't gonna matter to you. Your only hope of experiencing anything of the goodness of God is God in you by his Holy Spirit. And the more that the Holy Spirit resides in you, Ephesians 3, the more that you experience his fullness and all that it means to know him. But that hidden sin always quenches his spirit. Listen, I I just wanna tell you, as I've thought about this a lot in my own life this week, what I've realized is this, is that when I'm walking in hidden sin, I can't be walking in the spirit. And when I'm not walking in the spirit, I can't be any of the things I wanna be. I can't be the pastor I wanna be. I can't be the husband I wanna be. I can't be the father I wanna be. That None of those things are possible. And I'm wondering why none of the things that God has promised are experiencing in my life. And the reason is often is because there's some sin that I haven't confessed, that God has already made known to me, but I'm refusing to deal with it because our hidden sin always grieves the presence of God. Let me tell you the second consequence. Our hidden sin always hinders our progress. It always grieves God's presence. Number one, write this down. It always hinders our progress. Just all chapters one through six are progress, 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 progress. They're advancing, they're advancing, they're advancing. And at this one moment, they're completely stopped. And instead of the the nations running away, the nations are running to them because the people of God could not advance. He says very clearly, I will be with you no more. Consecrate yourselves because you cannot stand before your enemies, verse 13, without me. This is an amazing picture of how hidden sin stops our spiritual progress. Now let me explain this in two ways, listen to me. I want you to know that your hidden sin affects our corporate progress. The entire nation is stopped. But the thing I kept asking myself is this, like, how is it that one man's sin affects the entire nation? And I just, here's the word picture the Lord gave me. Think about my father who passed away in January, who has always been healthy. And when he died, he had a healthy heart. He had a healthy mind. uh, He had low blood pressure. He didn't have high cholesterol. Like 90% of his body was completely healthy. But there was one part of his body that had cancer. And that one part of his body that had cancer killed the rest of his body. You realize your whole body doesn't have to be sick for the body to die. Do you know it's the exact same way in the family and in the church? It can be one area of sickness can affect the entire body. And that's exactly what's happening. 
You know, the truth is the gates of hell cannot stop the church, but our sin can. We already looked at the, church, the letters to the churches in Revelation. Our sin can stop the progress of the church. This is why I say often, your sin is never just your problem. It's never just your problem. Because the way the rippling effects of hidden sin work is it always affects the corporate group of people. Now listen, I've discovered, particularly in the South and even in churches like ours, if you want to get more amens, which every pastor does, then what you begin to preach on, and I, I had an experience of this just a few weeks ago when I, I said one thing that I thought was going to get a lot of amens and it didn't. I said another thing that wouldn't get amens and it got a lot. And what I realized is this. If you want to get a lot of amens, what you talk about is how our American culture is changing and we're losing our moral values. Man, you can stir up a people on that. Like a church in the South, man, they'll raise the flag on the F-150 when they leave the church and they'll say, that's right, Pastor. When we took the Ten Commandments out, that's when it all started happening. We took prayer out of schools, that's when it started happening. Like if you want to get some serious, like I could fire you up if you gave me three minutes to talk about America right now. Oh, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Let me just tell you something. We get so worried about our culture changing and losing its moral values. The bigger issue is this. The church is changing and losing its moral values. That's the problem. And that doesn't get near as many amens. You know why? Because the other one is about their problem. This one's about our problem. So we love to amen how everybody else is doing bad. What I want to say to you is this. The church gets right, the city gets right. The city gets right, the community gets right, the state gets right, the nation gets right. If the nation's going the wrong way, it's because the church is not going the right way. That's the issue. And what we just fail to realize, listen, is that every individual sin affects the ability of the whole to advance the kingdom of Christ. Your sin is never just your problem. It hinders our progress. But it, it hinders your personal progress. In Hebrews 12 says, lay aside every weight and sin that hinders you and encumbers you and run with endurance the race that is set before you like Jesus did for the joy set before him. And the word picture is this, is that you cannot make spiritual progress while carrying around a bunch of unnecessary weight. Like that sin needs to be removed. Hidden sin is literally like this massive weight you're carrying around and you're trying to make progress, but you can't because the hidden sin is weighing you down. You do a thousand other good things, but this thing is keeping you back because you fail to deal with it. It grieves God's presence. It hinders our progress. And the last one is this, write this down. Our hidden sin always hurts other people. It grieves God's presence, it hinders our progress, it always hurts other people. Listen, if there is any compelling consequence of hidden sin, it is this one. One sin in Joshua 7, one sin, 36 soldiers die, a nation is humiliated, Joshua is deeply grieved, and one entire family is killed. One sin. I think the biggest lie of the enemy, which Achan believed, is I can do this and everything else is going to be fine. Like, it's going to be fine. We're still going to advance. We're still going to move. No one's going to know but me. And it's going to be okay. And what he realized is this. No, no, no. He realized that his sin and his hidden sin is always going to affect other people. He failed to realize that even if that sin is not seen, there are rippling effects that are going to affect everyone. 
We think about the consequences of hidden sin and we think, boy, if this ever gets known, our sin exposed, I'm gonna be humiliated, my family's gonna be hurt. The main thing I wanna see you from, for you this morning is this, is that even if that never happens, listen, even if you die and that sin goes to your grave and no one else ever knew it, it is still affecting everyone else around you. We talked about this last week. We talked about generational curses, how one generation's failure to deal with sin affects the next generation. And they don't deal with it, and then it goes on and on. This is not some curse you cannot break. It's simply a sin you refuse to deal with. And as a result, your children end up with the same struggles because you didn't decide that you were going to deal with it. That at some point, one generation has to say, enough is enough. We're not going to live like that anymore. And when they have the courage to deal with their sin, the next generation is blessed. But when they fail to deal with their sin, the next generation is cursed. I just think about this practically. I've been thinking about this so much in my own life and my experience with this. And just, just being reminded that when I hide sin, again, I'm not walking in the spirit. And you know what else happens? Listen, I am filled with self-hatred when I walk in my hidden sin. I hate myself. I hate everything about me. I don't like the man I am. You understand what this is like. And when you get so deep into self-hatred and you just don't like the person you are, you make everyone around you miserable. You can't be a loving and a gracious person when you just can't stand yourself. And most of that is the guilt and the consequence of our hidden sin that we've simply failed to deal with. So if you'll hang on with me for about two or three more minutes, let me tell you how we need to respond to this, okay? I think when you preach a message like this, there are two kinds of fear that comes. Give me your attention here. Two kinds of fear that stirs up in our heart. The first is just the fear of hidden sin, right? That I'm, I should be afraid of this. I mean, last chapter stirs up faith in us. This chapter is supposed to stir up fear in us. Man, the fear of, of, of this sin and how it's affecting others and what it's doing to your children and what it's doing to your church, all of that, that kind of fear is real and good and should be there. There's another kind of fear that stirs up. It's this fear. What about the consequences if I come clean? What, what is my wife thinking? What is my husband thinking? What do those around me think? If I, if I come at the beginning and I ask for prayer, what is everybody going to think? Well, first of all, if they judge you, they're self-righteous and have a bigger problem than you have. Like, we're never going to get anywhere as a church until God breaks some kind of religious barrier and spirit in our church in which we realize every single one of us are just really messed up. Like, if someone comes down for prayer and you judge them, God help you. You need to repent. But that's, that's the fear. Like what happens? What, what happens if I, if I come clean on this? Can I just tell you this? The cost of hiding your sin is always greater than the cost of confessing it. The cost of hiding your sin is always greater than the cost of confessing it. And what God is asking you to do today, listen, he's asking you to replace that fear with faith. This is how we respond. It is only faith that can take away that fear. Say, what do you mean? The faith that believes that what I'm missing is far worse than what I'm gaining. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You want God. You want more of God. Everything is flowing from God. It is God that is the greatest treasure. So you have to believe that God is better than that sin. And because of that, you will willingly confess that sin because of your belief that God is greater than that. Can I just say this? And the truth is that all of us in some way are in Aiken. 
We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Keep thinking about Luke 15 where you've got the prodigal son who is walking in open sin and lots of hidden sin, but he repents and comes back home and the father welcomes him. The one who misses out is the self-righteous older brother that thinks he deserves more. That's what happens in the church. It's the self-righteous who miss out. It's the humble that get grace. It's those who walk back home who get the embrace of the father. See, all of us have been messed up by sin, but the good news is, is that there's an answer to sin. There's an answer for sin. I want to say this carefully as I close, but listen. Achan is not a type of Christ. Joshua is a type of Christ. He points us forward to Christ. Achan is not a type of Christ, but there's a picture of the gospel so clear in this chapter, and it is this. By one man's sin, everyone was cursed in Joshua 7, exactly like it was with Adam. And in one man's death, God's anger was removed exactly like it is on the cross. You see, the glorious news is this, is there is more grace in this chapter than there is anger. There is more mercy than there is wrath. The mercy is this, is Jesus Christ died to take all of your shame and all of your guilt so that you didn't have to carry it any longer. If you're carrying it, it's not because you have to, it's because you refuse to come to the cross and get forgiveness. What God is inviting you to do today is to believe by faith that he is so much better and that the consequences of hiding are always greater than the consequences of confessing. He's asking you to have the faith to believe that Jesus is better. So come and kneel down and get humble before God because the humble receive grace. Pray somehow by God's grace you would do that today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.